Alright, so here we are in Revelation chapter 5. And let me just read verse 1 here to start off. It says, And I saw in the right hand of Him that sat on a throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now, one thing that's very important I've been trying to stress as we go through the book of Revelation is one, making sure that we are getting the main theme of the chapters. And one of the things I've noticed as I've been studying the book of Revelation and as even as I've just kind of gone back and I've looked at some of my old pre-trib books and things that I have and I even listen to some, uh, you know, listen to a lot of pre-trib, you know, just one more time making sure they're not getting, you know, there's not something I'm missing from there. But one of the things that I've noticed while reading the books on these things or reading commentaries from pre-tribbers or listening to them preach, one thing that they never do is they never focus on, you know, what is the main point of this chapter? Everybody wants to zero in on a verse and they always, they focus on the wrong things. They don't ask any of the right questions. And I think the reason for that is clear is because they're just, they're wrong in their doctrine. Most people, when they read the book of Revelation, they read it trying to make it fit their theology. They read it trying to make it fit their timeline. And because of that, they miss a lot of very important details that could really help them out. And one thing I've also noticed too, in just kind of looking back at some of my pre-trib books and listening to pre-trib preaching, and you know, if we're not careful, we can do this too, right? Pre-tribbers aren't the only ones that do this kind of stuff. But I am amazed at how much stuff that's in the Bible that is about Jesus, but people have made these passages about us. It really does, it really does amaze me. You know, I was just looking at, uh, listening to somebody who, once again, yeah, everybody likes to use the story of the woman taken in adultery as, uh, you know, they'll take that passage and use that to say, you know, we don't have to have the death penalty anymore. And the dispensationalists will even use that story because they're too squeamish to say we shouldn't put homos to death and things like that. But wait a minute, the dispensationalists will even tell you that they were under the Old Testament until the death of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, why was Jesus throwing that law out then? Okay, He wasn't throwing that law out. The whole point of that passage in John, and that the whole point of that story where the woman is taken in adultery, did you know that passage is not about the woman? The point of that passage is these people put Jesus in a really tough spot asking Him what they should do. If He says they should let her go, then he's going against the Old Testament law. If he says they should kill her, and if he says stone her, then he's in trouble with the Romans. They said that tempting him. And yet Jesus, he stumped them with one statement, made them all walk away and leave. That passage is about Jesus and about his wisdom. It's not about us. And everybody wants to use that as an excuse to say, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. Who cares? You commit adultery. Who cares? You know, Jesus... You know, he got rid of that. He abolished the death penalty. No, he didn't. And it's amazing how many passages we've taken and we've missed the main point of the entire passage so we can zero in on a little verse why, to make it fit our theology. And that's what people do with the Bible over and over again. And you know what? It makes me sick. It really does. It irritates me seeing that. It's, it irritates the snot out of me the way pre-tribbers will take Revelation 4 that is all about Jesus. It's all about Him receiving all power because He is, was worthy of that power and they make, it, they make it all about us. 
You know, they look at that and they're trying to find out where we're at in there. Boys, come up hither. That's a pre-trib rapture right there. That's about us. You don't see the church mentioned anymore. You know, maybe, it's, maybe it's not talking about the church because it's talking about Jesus right now. You know, and a lot of the things too, where they don't make it about us, then they make it about the Jews. For example, all the things when it comes to the land, when it comes to the seed. What do they do? All those promises were to the seed. That's about the Jews. This is a Jewish book. It's about a Jewish people written by Jews. No, it's God's book. It's God's word. This book is about Jesus. This is who it's about. This is all about Jesus. And you know what? Chapter 5 is all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus Christ. So enough of a rant on that. But before we kind of get into the rest of this chapter, uh, a few things I need to point out and show you to make sure you understand to help you get what Revelation chapter 5 is all about. Because this is key, all right? Y'all got to get this stuff because I don't want to have to explain it to you again when we get to Revelation chapter 6. Alright? So if y'all don't pay attention, if y'all don't look like you're getting it, we're going to get a repeat and I'm going to have to preach double long next week. Alright? So just pay close attention. So in, so here's a question that people need to ask. And this is, this is, nobody asks this question when they're reading the book of Revelation and that is, what is this book? Alright? We see a book featured in this chapter and you know what? I've never heard any preachers explain what this book is. What is this book? I actually believe this book is mentioned in the Old Testament. I believe this is a very specific book. And whenever you see something like that, you realize, hey, you know, how come the preachers don't meet, aren't paying attention to this? There's usually a good reason for that. Because if we pay attention to what this book is, then all of a sudden, it makes our theology, the post-trib view, make a lot more sense than what the pre-tribbers try to teach. So let's pay attention to this book in this story because it is, it is very key. So we see a book and it's got seven seals on it. Now these seals are not the wrath of God. Okay, The seven seals are not the wrath of God. And I'll prove that more when we get to Revelation chapter 6. But what you need to understand, there's some things you need to understand about these seals and the return of Christ. Okay, When it comes to the return of Christ, there are two main events. All right? There is the rapture or the removal of God's people from the earth before He begins to pour His wrath out on this earth. And then we have His physical return where He actually steps foot on earth. And He splits them out of olives, which we believe comes after Armageddon or at Armageddon. So there's kind of two main events. And so the appearing of Christ, that's where He removes the saved. We'll say more about that in future weeks too. And then, after He removes the saved, God begins executing judgment. After He removes the believers. After the rapture of the believers. Not the rapture of the church. Anybody who says rapture of the church, always watch out for those people. They usually got a little bit of brighter in them. And they always want to say rapture of the church too. Rapture of the church. There's a reason they're saying that, even though that term's not in the Bible. They're saying that over and over again to remind you there's a distinction between the church and Israel. That's why, that's why they do that. Okay? But that is not a biblical uh, way to put it. It's the rapture of the saved, if, it was, if we're going to call it anything. It's the believers. Alright? And so, judgment, okay, when God is getting, before God rules and reigns in this earth, God is going to pour out some judgment on this earth. But we've got to understand, judgment, it begins with us and ends with the world. Turn over to 1 Peter 
chapter 4 and verse 12. This is an important thing that we need to understand. And most of what I'm about to say here, I think pre-tribbers would probably agree with me uh, on it, except for when I said the seals are not the wrath of God. But what I'm about to say here, I think most pre-tribbers would agree. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But I tell you what, we're going to need to be telling people this verse a lot when the tribulation starts. All your pre-trib friends, you're going to give, what's going on? We're still here. <laughs> this, you're going to need to give them this verse during that, those days. But rejoice in as much as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now, why would we not be glad? Well, here's why a lot of people wouldn't be glad, because they're not right with God. Listen, when we see Christ, you're not going to be glad to see Him if you're in a sorry, backslidden state. Okay? So this fiery trial that's trying you, it's purifying you. This is good. This is going to make you more excited at His return. It says, If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God rested upon you. On their part is evil spoken of, but on your part is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or as an evildoer, as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. So judgment begins in the house of God. And I like how it says that the righteous scarcely be saved. Why are we scarcely saved? You know why? Because at the end of the day, we're no better than the rest of the world. What's the difference? We believed on Christ. That's the only difference. When it comes to my righteousness versus the world's righteousness, there is no difference. Okay? The only difference is I put my faith in Christ, so I receive imputed righteousness. I receive His righteousness. My righteousness and the world's righteousness, the difference isn't even worth mentioning. And that's what I like to say too with these pompous, arrogant fools who think that they're saved because they repented of their sins. They act like you've got to change your life. Really, if you're so good, how come Jesus needs to change you with the rapture? Most of them will agree that they're going to get a changed body at the rapture. Well, why if they're so good right now? You know, they've just impressed, you know, they're so impressive now. They've repented of their sins and they're this good church going person now. And, you know, why does God need to change? You know why He needs to change you? Because you still have a vile body. And these people that teach this stuff, they, they also make me sick. A lot of stuff makes me sick. But that, that, that really makes me sick. Makes me want to vomit. But anyway, so judgment begins in the house of God. God's going to judge us first. And then He's going to pour out His wrath on the earth. So we're going to get raptured. We're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And then, after God deals with us, then He's going to take care of the world. Then He's going to pour His wrath out on the world. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8. It says, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, 
whether it be good or bad. So, it's, there's no doubt about it. I think even a pre-tribber would agree. We will be judged before the world gets judged. Judgment begins at the house of God. So we get raptured, we get judged, and then God comes to deal with the earth. And God will do a lot of His dealings from heaven, but then He is going to actually physically come back to earth and He's going to set up His kingdom after He's poured, done a lot of supernatural events that we'll, re, uh, that we'll cover in later weeks. So, you know, we cannot be judged though until we're reunited with our body. Because it says in that passage, we're going to be judged according to uh, the things we've done. It says uh, the things done in His body. Okay, so uh, the souls. When we, if I were to die right now, my soul's going to go to heaven. You know, that which is born of God sinneth not. Okay, spiritual. I've been born again. What's born of God does not sin. That's what's going to go to heaven when I die. But my body, my flesh, is what's sinful. Well, when the rapture comes, God's going to resurrect it. He's going to change it. And then I'm going to go up into heaven physically. And then I'm going to stand before Him at the judgment seat of Christ. And I'm going to be judged according to what I did in my body. So the judgment seat of Christ does not take place until after the rapture. And it happens before God pours His wrath out on this world because judgment begins at the house of God. So y'all follow me so far? Y'all getting this? Make sure you're, make sure y'all getting this. So I'm going to have to repeat it next week. Okay, so after God judges us, then He's going to judge the world. And that's what Revelation 19 is. We're not going to take time to read it. But in Revelation 19, that's kind of the climactic event. Climac, cl- climatic? Am I saying that right? Climactic? You know what I mean. Uh, I'm not the most eloquent person in the world. That's the big event, alright? There's a lot of what I call the birth pains that are before that, and the seven trumpets and the seven vials. But then the big event is when Jesus Christ shows up on the white horse, and then He's going to, uh, He's going to, Set on his throne on Mount Zion, which, by the way, is not where the Temple Mount is today. That's the wrong place. That's another story for another day. Where you see the Dome of the Rock at, that is not where the Temple was. That can and that can easily be proven with the Bible, with archaeology, and with history. All three of those things agree. The Bible, archaeology, and history all agree perfectly, and it all says that. That hill there is not where the temple was. But I'll, I'll tell you more about that on another day. That we, uh, we covered that at Marching to Zion Conference. Very easy to prove that's not the right place. What do you expect from a group of people who can't even figure out who the Messiah is? Think they're going to figure out the temple location? I don't think so. But anyway, uh, so, uh, so, after, so yeah, after God judges us, then He's going to judge the world. Look what it says in Jude 1. 14 and 15 it says, and, and this is really one of the oldest prophecies about the return of Christ. This was something that Enoch preached. It says, and Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. That is Armageddon right there. When Jesus comes back with His saints. 
That, and that's when He's going to judge the world. After He has already judged us. And that's why we're going to be coming with Him. That's why the saints are following after Him. We've already been dealt with. We've already been taken care of. And so now it's time for God to judge the world. So, you know, pretty much all futurists, you know, whether they're in a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib camp, they're going to agree with a lot of what I just said. But where we disagree is on what is the wrath of God. That's where there's disagreement. Now, Revelation 6 spells it out. Okay, Revelation leaves no Revelation 6 leaves no doubt that the wrath of God does not come until after the sixth seal. I don't want to get into that. I'll cover that next week. But I want to show you too how Revelation 5 proves that the seals are not the wrath of God. Okay? Revelation 5 also proves that we can know that before we even get to Revelation chapter 6. So, I, I believe... So, what is this book? Alright, what is this book that is a key fit thing that we see here in Revelation chapter 5? Because we have a book... And what is it say, saying there? It says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Now, why is John so upset about this? Why is John so anxious to see this book opened? Why? Why doesn't why doesn't any pre-tribbers ever want to talk about that? Why don't any pre-tribbers want to explain to us what this book is and why John would be crying about the fact that nobody is able to op- open this book? Verse five says, "One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose." The seven seals thereof. Okay, so that's Jesus, of course. There's no doubt about that. Jesus has prevailed to open the book. Why is this so good? Why is it so important that He opened this book? Well, it's, if we find out what's inside the book, we'll know why John wanted Him to open the book so much. Okay, and we don't need to talk about why He's worthy. We talked a lot about that last week. Of course, if you need to know why He's worthy just in general, He's Jesus. Alright? He's God. He's, He's prevailed. He's worthy. You name it, He's worthy of it. Alright? So, we covered some of that last week. But He has prevailed to open this book. So, what's in the book? Everybody knows this passage, but nobody wants to talk about what this book is. So, I personally believe, and I think, I'm gonna, I, think I can prove it to you, I believe that what's inside this book, because that's what's important. What is inside this book? Okay? You know, if you have a book, you know, here's a song book. You know, it's not the fact that you have a book. It's what's inside the book. Okay? What does it say? What is contained in this book? That's what's important. Well, before we can open this book, we've got to break some seals so we can see what is in the book. Alright? And so that's what's about to happen. So Jesus, He is the one who is worthy to open the book. He is the one that breaks the seals. He's the only one worthy to do it. Okay? And so, I believe contained inside this book is the revelation of God's wrath. God's wrath is what's inside this book. The seals are not the wrath. Okay? The seals are not the wrath. He's got to break the seals off. Okay? You can kind of put it this way. You can look at it this way. 
It's like inside the book, too, you could say are like his instructions for dealing with the world and how he's going to judge the world. And so before he can see, see what's in that book and do what's in that book, he's got to be able to open the book. And inside, so, so, uh, Bible doesn't say it has a title on it, but just picture the title on the book that says, The Wrath of God. Inside of it. But before we can know what the wrath of God is, we have to break the seals. Because inside is the wrath of God. Not the seals. Okay, the seals are not the wrath of God. It's what's inside the book that reveals the wrath of God. So before the wrath of God can be revealed, before we can find out what's inside that book, the seals need to be broken, all seven of them. Okay? And you might say, but wait a minute, His wrath comes after the sixth seal. So what about the seventh? Go ahead and turn over to chapter 6 real quick. So this is after He breaks the sixth seal. This is where the sun's darkened and the moon is turned to blood because the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before that great and terrible day of the Lord come. Okay, Before the day of the Lord, which is the rapture, and pre-tribbers will even agree the day of the Lord is the rapture depending on what argument they're having. Okay, Depending on what day you're talking to them and what argument you're having, you know, if you're talking about a secret rapture, then yes, the day of the Lord is the rapture because He's coming as a thief in the night. If you're talking about the timing of the rapture, whether it be in pre-trib or post-trib, the day of the Lord is not the rapture. You know, it, it, it all depends on what argument you're having with them. It's a moving target. So, uh, I lost my spot. Oh yeah, chapter 6 in verse uh, 16. So, uh, you know, the rich men, they're all hiding the mountains, saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? So when the sixth seal is broken, I believe it is shortly after this when Jesus Christ returns in the clouds and every eye shall see Him. And when they see Him, it's gonna, they're going to mourn for Him. We're going to rejoice because when we see Him, we're going to be changed in a moment in twinkling of an eye. We're going to be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We're going to be raptured at that moment. But the rest of the world is going to be in trouble because Jesus Christ is going to be, He's going to begin pouring His wrath out on the earth. So, um, look at chapter 8. Alright, so what about the seventh seal though? Because that's only the sixth seal. When we get to chapter 7, that's where we get into the rapture. You got the sealing of the 144,000. You have the rapture take place there. But then in chapter, we don't get to the seventh seal in chapter 8. And in chapter 8 it says, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of, uh, of half an hour. And I, I saw seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Okay, And right there, those seven trumpets, that when they blow those trumpets, those trumpets are revealing the wrath of God, what the wrath of God is. Okay, I'll say more about that in a future week, but what I want to point out to you is that the seventh seal, all it says is there was silence and then seven angels prepared to sound their trumpets. Now, I was looking at my Tim LaHaye Charting the End Times book because they always people always talk about the 28 judgments, the seven seal judgments, the seven vial, or the, the seven trumpet judgments, 
the seven thunders and the seven bowl judgments. Okay? And anytime you hear a person say bowl judgments, they've been studying something that's not King James. It's vials. Alright? It's the seven vile judgments. And not like V-I-L-E, V-I-A-L. And, but they, they'll call them all judgments. But who says the seals are judgments? And you know, the best argument I've heard that the seals are the wrath of God is, well, it's Jesus breaking those seals. You know, why is it, uh, I don't want to make fun of Southerners right now, but let's just say, that's a stupid argument, alright? That is a really stupid argument. Because he's breaking the seals, that makes it the, that makes it his wrath? No, it doesn't. Okay, all that's happening when he's breaking those seals, okay, what's happening when Jesus Christ is breaking those seals, an angel each time says, come and see, and what's happening is John is getting a revelation. He is seeing some of the tribulation. That's all it is. Okay, He's supposed to be writing down the things that he saw. And so God is showing him in, in, this, in this vision, every time he breaks one of these seals, he is giving him a vision of the tribulation that comes before God pours his wrath out on this earth. That's all, that's all that is. Okay, And so... Look at what it says. Um, oh yeah, so back to that seventh seal. All right, so that seventh seal, Tim LaHaye in his book, he tries to say that you know that's a judgment. But wait a minute, all this is silence in heaven for half an hour, and that's what it says too. When you're looking at his little chart that he has in there, and when you get the seven, the seventh seal judgment, it says silence in heaven for half hour, and angels getting ready to blow trumpets. It's like, how is that a judgment? Why is that a judgment? Alright? It's not a judgment. The, what's going on is those seven trumpets are revealing the wrath of God. You see, there's seven seals on that book. Okay? When he breaks the seventh seal, guess what's revealed? What's inside the book? The book is now opened. And inside the book is the wrath of God. And what does it happen to be? Seven angels blowing a trumpet. Y'all get that? So inside this book is the wrath of God. This book is part of God's judgment. Now, what exactly does it say in this book? Alright? Now, I don't... I, if, allow me to speculate a little bit here. Okay? I think I actually know some of the things that are written in the book. I think... I actually think there will be some words in that book that are my words, my prayers. I think there will be some words in there basically calling down fire and brimstone on Washington, D.C. That's what I believe. Now, where do, you, where do you get that from? Well, turn over to Psalms chapter 56. I'm glad you asked me that. Turn over to Psalms chapter 56. Let's look at what it says. So often we, we say prayers and we don't think, it's like we think God doesn't hear them or God doesn't answer them. So God just doesn't always answer when we want Him to. Okay? I've definitely called down, you know, prayed down fire and brimstone on, or prayed for fire and brimstone to fall on Washington, D.C. many times. But it hasn't happened yet. But I believe it's going to one of these days. Look what it says. 
Psalm 56, verse 1, Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O Thou Most High. What time I am afraid, I will trust in Thee. In God I will praise His Word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps when they wait for my soul. Shall they escape my iniquity? In thine anger, cast down the people, O God. Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. Do you all see that? He mentions there, he said in verse 8, Thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle, are they not in thy book? He's shedding tears. He's crying. Why? Because the world's against him. People are against him. He's praying for judgment in this passage. And he's telling God to put his tears in a bottle. He says, are they not in thy book? Okay, and when I think he's talking about the tears, you know, the things he's, the things that are causing him to cry, the things that he's been praying about, he says these things are in God's book. And look back at Revelation chapter eight again, and it says in verse three, and another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hands. You know what I think is taking place right there? After Jesus breaks those seals and after He opens up that book, what happens? The first trumpet sounds. What happens? They get out all those prayers of the saints. All those prayers of the saints, they're like brought out in a censer, and they're poured out, and it's like what I picture in my head when they do this, all of a sudden I can just picture like this cloud of smoke going up, and I just hear the voices of millions of people calling out to God. And I believe some of those, one of those voices is going to be mine. Calling for God's judgment and for God's justice. And Jesus Christ, He's going to hear those prayers, and at that time, He's going to start answering those prayers. And these people are going to get what's coming to them. Why? Because God is beginning to pour His wrath out. Now listen, folks, if I'm right about what this book is, it would, wouldn't it not make sense that this book is about the wrath of God? And if this book is about the wrath of God, can somebody please explain to me how these seals can be called the wrath of God? The wrath of God's inside the book. That's where it's at. I believe this book is the one that David referred to in Psalms chapter 56. So this, the, what's going to be happening there, our prayers are going to be getting answered. And you know what? Not much of this prayer, I'm afraid, is going on in America today. You know why? Because we've got a bunch of lukewarm Christians. You know, we've got a bunch of Christians, we've got a bunch of churches, a bunch of preachers that are telling their people, you know, not to pray for judgment. Oh, that's just a bad attitude. Well, I'm sorry. I want as much of the action as I can get when I get to heaven. And you know what? I'm not allowed to do it, but you know what? The vengeance belongs to God. And when this world and when, when our wicked government, it does stuff, you know what? This year when I go do my taxes, I'm going to say another prayer. I'm going to say another prayer. 
And you know what? I believe God's going to put it in His book. And one of these days, that book's going to get open. You know, and some of you all, you're not going to add anything to what's going to come to this world because you're not praying for anything. You know what? Pray for these things. Alright? Whatever, whatever. You know, San Francisco. Hollywood. Why do we not pray for the Lord to judge these places? Well, it's not happening right now. It will then. We've seen it in all the disaster movies when the Hollywood sign you know, gets destroyed in an earthquake or something. It's going to happen one of these days. You know what? I'm going to pray for it. And God's going to deal with it when He pours out His wrath. But guess what? He's not going to pour out His wrath until the seven seals are broken. That's when it's going to take place. So we've got to be doing these, we've got to be saying these prayers. David did it. They're recorded in the Bible. These things are examples for us. Stop listening to these limp-wristed preachers. Just a bunch of, you know, just, you know, go ahead and pray for that stuff. It's fine. So, so why are, why, you know, just real simply, let's go through some of these verses here in chapter 5 and you get back to chapter 5. So you got that angel proclaiming, you know, who is worthy to open the book. And I think the, I think it's pretty easy to understand why nobody was worthy. The reason none of us are worthy to open the book is because we've all contributed to the sin. So we're not worthy. But Jesus Christ, He never contributed to the sin. In fact, Jesus Christ paid for the sins of the whole world. Do you realize that everybody that God pours His wrath out on are people who rejected Christ's payment for their sins? So He is worthy to do this because of the simple fact He paid for the sins of the whole world. Therefore, He has every right to it. But we can't be trusted to execute vengeance. Vengeance belongs to God. He will recompense or He will repay. We cannot be trusted to do it. And so as as believers, we're not called to take over the world. God has not called us to do that. We're not trying to take over government. That's why we're not a bunch of Fox News Baptists just going around trying to be a part of the Republican Party so we can go take back Congress and you know, win America that way. It's not the way we do it. That's not how God, that is not what God called for, and we're not going to do that. So look at verse 5. It says, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book, and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. So we see Jesus Christ is the one worthy to loose the seals. One, because he never sinned, but it mentioned him here, him as a lamb, as having been slain. He is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. And Jesus Christ was worthy. So there's still, there are still many things that need to be fulfilled by man in the Old Testament because this is one of the things that Jesus is going to do when He comes back. Okay? There are a lot of prophecies from the Old Testament that have yet to be fulfilled. There are, there are uh, prophecies or things that God gave man to do that God called for man to do in the Old Testament that man has never done. But when Jesus Christ returns, part of what He's going to do when He comes back to this earth is He is going to fulfill those things. There's promises about land that is yet to be fulfilled. I hate to sound like a Zionist right now. okay? But there are there are promises about the land of Israel that are yet to be fulfilled. But guess what? 
it's not going to be fulfilled with the people that they, they're thinking of. I'll, I'll show you who that's going to be in a minute. But, see, the thing is, God gave them that law in the Old Testament, didn't they? But nobody fulfilled that law except for Jesus Christ. He was the one that fulfilled that law. You know, he, Jesus did it. Man could not atone for their sins. We see God gave him sacrifices and things that looked forward to the coming atonement of Jesus Christ. But ultimately, who was it that atoned for sins? It was Jesus Christ. It was His work. Man was not able to set up a righteous government. Because man never set up a righteous government, man or Israel even, Israel never got all the promises that God had promised to them if they would keep His law and walk in His ways. But guess what? Jesus will do that too, won't He? A lot of the things that God told man to do in the Old Testament, they failed at doing it. Some of those things, Jesus already did it, like atoning for sins. But there are still some things that are yet to be done. And so Jesus Christ, He is going to judge us first. Then He's going to judge the world. And then while He is on this earth, He's going to rule and reign in righteousness for a thousand years. What's He doing? He's fulfilling what has yet to be fulfilled from the Old Testament. That's what's, that's what's coming. That's what He's about to do. That's what's going on. <clears throat> you see, once again, when you're a pre-tribber, it's all about you. And they read Revelation 5, 6, and 7, and they're looking at all this, and they're just thinking about ourselves. How does this affect us? How does this affect the Jews? But no, this is about Jesus Christ. He's the one doing everything. He's the one doing the work. There are things that He is yet to fulfill and he is going to do, he's going to come back and he is going to fulfill these things. Why? Because these promises that are in the Old Testament have to be kept. And they will be kept through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> there, so there was promises that God made to Abraham and his seed, not the Jews, but Jesus Christ. And these promises that God made to believing Israel, these people, they never got these things in their first life, but they will in the next life. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. Because, you know, and unfortunately, dispensationalists, you know, not, not all dispensationalists are lost, but they're all pretty dumb at best. And, you know, there's just no talking to these people, right? They're so stubborn. And, you know, what do they always want to do? You know, what about when God promised that land to Israel? You know, God's got to give it to the Jews. Therefore, unless I agree that God has some promises that are yet to be fulfilled when it comes to land for Israel, I totally agree with that statement. But what makes you think a bunch of yarmulke-wearing, you know, curly-locked people, you know, head-banging prayer people are Israel? What makes you think that? Especially when the Bible says, for they are not all Israel that are of Israel. Bible, from when the Bible says he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, what makes you think that those white people over there, some of the most wicked people on the planet, are Jews or Israel? Just because they say that? You know what? If, these, if you're going to go off that mentality, if you're going to say that somebody's a Jew just because they say they are, then you know what? It's time to start calling Bruce Jenner Caitlin. It's time to call, start calling him a her. It's time to call Rachel Dolezal or whatever her name is. We've we got to start telling her she's black. You know, we've got to start letting these people be whatever they want. 
If your little boy comes and he wants to be a girl, you better just recognize it. If people can just be whatever they say, they say they are, they are. That's what they do with the Jews. That is exactly what they do with the so-called the synagogue of Satan. I'm sorry, I got to quit calling them Jews. Old habits hard to break. The Bible says they are not Jews, but all these people. Nope, it's going to the people who pray to a wall. No, it's not. You know who the land is going to go to? The people that God promised it to. See, what's crazy, once again, when pre-tribbers aren't thinking about themselves, they're thinking about the Jews. Many times they should be thinking about Jesus. So what they'll do is they'll go back and they'll read a story from Genesis where God promised a land to Abraham and his seed, which we already proved is Christ. And they want to, they want to give it to people banging their head on a wall praying. And that is, that makes no sense at all. How about the Bible, we say the Bible teaches that the promises are going to be fulfilled to those who God promised them to. I mean, guys like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. Those people. Do you all realize there is a resurrection coming? Do you all realize there is Ezekiel chapter 37 where there is these dry bones? It calls it the whole house of Israel. And in there, it talks about life coming back. But that can't be talking about the resurrection. You know, that, no, that's talking about 1948. Really? Really? That's 1948? No, how about that's talking about the resurrection? We have dead bodies coming to life. Is that a stretch? Is that a stretch to say a story, of de- a vision of dead bodies coming to life is a picture of the resurrection? No, they want to, they want to apply it to 1948. That's the dumbest thing in the world. See, those Jews in the Old Testament, those ones who were given the promises but never received them, they're the ones that are going to get them. Those who are of faith. Those who believe God. Look what it says in Hebrews 11 verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that seek such things declare plainly that they seek a country, and truly if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is in heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. Y'all see who it's for? Those who didn't receive the promises, but had seen them afar off. Who are they? Those who are of faith. All of Hebrews chapter 11 is talking about those who are of faith. They are the ones who are going to receive the promises. So yes, God is going to restore the land to Israel, but it's those who are of faith. Those who are of Abraham, meaning those not those who come from Him physically, those who come from Him spiritually, those who are of faith. Folks, this Zionist stuff is just ridiculous. It has got to go. You know what? These people, there, there is no more, there is, there's no excuse anymore for this ignorance. There is no excuse. Let me tell you the reason Zionism is still alive. Stubbornness. It is stubbornness. From the saved old IFB, it is stubbornness. 
And let me tell you, I believe that the Lord is messing with the minds of these people that are remaining stubborn. I'm not talking about the rucktards. I'm not talking about them. Those people are just lost. Those people are just on their way to hell. Okay, those people, I'm not even talking about them. I'm talking in your mainstream, independent, fundamental, KJV, soul winning, saved Baptist churches that are embracing the Zionist garbage. It is just stubbornness. And God's given them the King Saul treatment. And that proof is in the pudding, folks. And these churches are dying for a reason. And it's high time for them to wake out of their sleep. There is no excuse for to believe Zionism anymore. Thank God for those who were willing to put themselves out there and preach it when it wasn't popular. Thank God for documentaries like Marching to Zion that's helped wake up a lot of people to say, Whoa! There's a Galatians 3 and 4 in the Bible? I didn't know that. Whoa, 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 whoa. Schofield? Wasn't a good guy? Listen, I'm sad to say that marching design has revealed to me that Schofield was a bad guy. I had a Schofield Bible. You know, I, I never really paid attention to the notes and everything like that. But, you know, it, it's sad that it took that for me to figure it out. You know, I, I just assumed it was good because I heard pastors talking about it all the time. Turn page 200 in your Schofield reference Bible. You know, just, there, you know, there, there's no excuse. So the promises will not be fulfilled to a bunch of frauds calling themselves Jews or Israel. It will be fulfilled to the very people that God promised them to. That's who it's going to be fulfilled in. So what are these prayers of the saints? Uh, go back to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. It says, And when he had taken the book... The four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. God's saving those things up because He's fixing to pour His wrath out on this earth. We saw that in Revelation 8, 1-3. through So it's a, it is, it's a righteous thing to pray for judgment. It is righteous. Okay, Don't listen to Pastor Trendy in his skinny jeans telling you, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. All right, don't, don't listen to him. He's using one verse in the Bible and he's using it out of context. Okay? Don't, li- don't listen to him. I don't have time to talk about that. So look at verse 9. Some people try to use verse 9 to prove they've been raptured. And, and this is where you just start, you know, I just, once again, you just like, you're arguing with stupid sometimes. And it's just like, you know what? I, some, I, I'm, I'm this close to with the old IV pre-trib crowd just saying, you know what? I'm just going to let you get the King Saul treatment. I don't care anymore. Because you're either stubborn or you're just too stupid to help. Look at verse 9. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. You see that? There's people from every kindred and tongue, people, nation. Therefore, that's right there. These are the raptured saints because they've all been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Therefore, they have already been raptured. That's proof of it. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay, that doesn't prove anything because do we not believe that those who have died are not already in heaven? Yes, their souls are in heaven. Okay, they're already there. But notice it mentions there's people from every nation and tribe. Okay, it mentions that they're there, 
but we don't necessarily see a distinction in these people. Okay, We don't see the distinction until we get to Revelation chapter 7. See, John saw this, you know, these souls, I believe, of, you know, of thousands and thousands and thousands. But in Revelation 7, all of a sudden you have a multitude that appears before the throne. And he sees a multitude and he sees from looking at them. He doesn't have to be told. He can see from looking at them. They're from all over the world. Why is that? You know why? Because the Ruckmanites are wrong. We're not all going to look like Jews when we get to heaven. Okay? I'm sorry. The dispensations are wrong. There will be black people in heaven. Okay? I do believe that there will be black people in heaven. Many people think, no, that's part of the curse they got from Ham and therefore, you know, they're, all the curses are going to be lifted and everybody's just going to look like a Jew in there. They don't want to say white because that would look racist. But if they say Jew, it's okay. But no, he's able to look at them and he's able to see that they're from all over the world. You know, it looks like any commercial that you see on TV today where they always have to have racially diverse people, all right? That's how it's going to be in heaven. You know why? Because people have been saved from all over the world. And he can see it from looking at them. And he's like, who are these that are in white robes? These are they who came out of great tribulation. They got raptured out of there. That's what's, that's what's going on. And people will bring up how, well, wait, you know, we got these multitudes here. We've got the multitudes there. You know, there's probably not going to be that many people that survive the tribulation. Okay, listen. Even if there's only ten people, ten saints left alive at the rapture, you do realize that all the dead in Christ are participating in the rapture too? That's, that's just how dumb these people are. They'll bring this stuff up. You know, you hear some of these post-tribbers say, you know, there's probably not going to be that many Christians even left, you know, after the Antichrist is killing them all. But right here it says in the Bible, there's a multitude that no man can number. What do they got to say about that? It's because the dead in Christ are going to be rising with us in that time. That's why. You know, do these people even think through the stuff that they say? It's like they'll, I mean, just anything that comes out of their mouth that's just negative about what we preach, and then you'll have a bunch of rednecks in the audience. Hi, man. Preach. That's right. Y'all are morons. And you know nothing about the rapture. Okay? It's just, it's so obvious. And then you, you try to talk to these people and you've got to try to answer all these stupid arguments that they act like that. This right here, it just destroys the post-trib doctrine. You know, these preachers get, they'll make a huge deal out of it. It's like, that doesn't destroy anything. You are a moron. The dead people all participate in the rapture. So there's going to be a lot of people that appear before the throne because the dead are going to rise then too. So even if I don't live until the rapture, I'm going to participate in that. I'm going to get caught up. I'm going to rise from the dead. It's not that difficult. It's not that difficult. So, uh, Galatians... So yeah, so some will try to use verse 9 to prove that they already have been raptured. But look what it says in Galatians 3, verse 13. I'm getting sidetracked on a lot of stuff tonight. I need to, I need to stay focused. <clears throat> it says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, uh, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So you see, people try to say because they've been redeemed there, 
That means they've been raptured. But listen, we have already been purchased. We've already been taken care of. We have already been redeemed. It says Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. It's not that we're not redeemed at the rapture. We're redeemed right now. Okay? Jesus Christ has already done it because we're saved. So they can't use that word redeemed there and all of a sudden make it mean raptured. That's just foolish right there. So Revelation 6, uh, turn, look what it says in Revelation 6. Well, don't even turn, I don't have time. In Revelation 6, 9 through 11, it m- mentions the martyrs there, those who, are, those who are killed, and it mentions them, well, it says in verse 9, it says, when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Okay? Why, where are their bodies? Okay? Okay, our bodies aren't in heaven yet because the rapture hasn't come yet. That's what's going on. Their souls are there, not their bodies. The bodies don't come until chapter 7. So the rapture has not come yet in chapter 5. It has not come yet in chapter 6. It does not come until chapter 7. In verse 9, it makes it very clear. People from all over the world were already there. But their distinct identities aren't noticed, noted until we get to chapter 7. Why? Because it was just the souls. So I don't know. Maybe all the souls look like a Jew. I don't know what the, I don't, I don't, I don't know, I don't know for sure what they look like. They probably don't, they probably shine. Alright, skin color. We probably don't even have skin. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it's going to look like exactly. I've not seen a soul. Okay? But I have seen a body. And you can tell them looking at a group when they're from all over the place. Okay? Last time me and the boys went to Chicago, we went up to the top of the Sears Tower. And I remember when we were up on top of the Sears Tower, I felt like I was in another country. There was like, and literally, if you saw any white people when we were up there, they were speaking another language. I'm not kidding. We were riding down the elevator. It was a big elevator, a lot of people in it. And there was like literally only two other white people. And they started talking and it was another language. I was like, man, it was like people from all over the world right there. I should have started preaching right then, right in the elevator. I have them for like two minutes probably. <laughs> I could have preached to people from all over the world. But anyway, so, uh, you know, the, so the identities are noted in chapter 7 because they've got their bodies now. So look at verse 10. It says, And it hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth on the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. So it starts out asking, Who is worthy? And we see in the book, in the book, Jesus Christ is worthy. And here at the end of the book, it's just all of heaven praising him, saying that he is worthy. And you know what? Heaven is excited because Jesus Christ is about to start breaking those seals. And once He breaks that seventh seal, prayers start getting answered. And that is going to be an exciting time. Because it is a righteous thing to pray for judgment. These people are going to be shouting about it. They're going to be excited about it. It's okay 
to be excited about these things. So I don't, I don't want to see all these people judged. Well, then you know what? Start going soul winning right now and get some people saved so they won't have to be judged. So they can be spared from the wrath to come. One of these days, Jesus Christ is going to break those seals and that book's going to be open. And when that book's open, they're in trouble. And so now is our time to be doing this. And I personally believe that the seals haven't started yet. I'll talk more about that next week. But you know what? When this tribulation gets started, I mean, our time is going to be short to be winning people to Christ. And if you really do care, if you, re- if you don't want to see judgment fall on people, unless I, you know, I, I want judgment to fall in general. Okay? I do. I want God's judgment to come. But at the same time, I do love my neighbor. I do love my family. I love the people of this community. That's why I give them the gospel. But you know what? When people start rejecting, and especially when they just reject to the point where they're clearly reprobate, then it's like, nothing wrong with praying for judgment at that point. And so I don't think we ought to do that. Well, listen, obviously a lot of people have been praying for judgment because we see their prayers have been saved up. We see that their prayers are in a book. And Jesus is going to open that book one of these days. And He wouldn't do anything that isn't righteous. And I believe what He's going to be doing during that time is answering prayers. So y'all need to, what y'all need to do tonight when you go home and you say your prayers, take your pick. Alright? I, I pick Washington, D.C. I'm going, to, I'm going to pray for that. You know, Somebody needs to take Hollywood. Uh, you know, so we, you know, so we're going to be gone when it happens. But you know what? I'm going to pray too for Rock Falls and Sterling. But you know what? Also, I'm going to pray in that prayer too. Is Lord help me get as many people out of here before that takes place? Because God's wrath is going to be poured out on the city one of these days. And so my prayer is, Lord, help me get as many people out of here. Lord, help me get as many people saved as possible. Because once that book is open, it's too late. It's too late. And so right now is our time to be winning people to Christ. And so that's what chapter 5 is all about. People, you've got to pay attention to what the book is. Jesus Christ is the one that's worthy to open the book. And that inside that book is the wrath of God. That's like, that's like His instructions of what He is going to do and how He's going to pour out His wrath. And it ain't going to be pretty because you know what? This, our history is full of God's people being slain in brutal ways. And let me tell you, you, you better believe some of those early Christians whose families are being fed to the lions, you know they probably said some pretty good prayers. And God has remembered those prayers. He has saved those prayers. And He's going to answer them one of these days. So keep the prayers going, folks. They're going to have an effect. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your goodness. We thank You, Lord, for this study. Lord, I pray You'll help us to learn from it. And dear God, I pray You'll help us to not listen to the trendies, Lord, but help us not to be afraid to pray for judgment. It is a righteous thing. And dear God, there are some places, Lord, that just the wickedness, Lord, that it's affecting us daily. And dear God, I do. I pray that You will pour Your wrath out of Washington, D.C. one of these days and places like Springfield, Illinois, that's just doing so much damage to our state and the city of Chicago. Dear Lord, I pray that You will... Uh, you will judge those places and you'll pour your wrath out on them. But dear God, in the meantime, 
I pray that you'll help us to find uh, those who are willing to listen to the gospel and see as many saved uh, before that takes place. And Lord, just help us to be busy winning souls, trying to spare people from the judgment that is coming. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead.